0: Welcome to Kitchen Table Conversations, a series of short and shareable conversation starters for those of us who have or love and support people with a complicated and beautiful brain. Here's your host, Angela Geddes. Hi, everyone, and thanks so much for tuning in to another edition of Kitchen Table Conversations. I'm your host, Angela, and I'm just so pleased that you're all tuning in today. It's already the month of May, which is just amazing to me. Um, but May is also the month that we are um, taking some time to acknowledge mental health and wellness and, and mental illness. So to be in line with the point of these, uh, this podcast in the first place, and that is to bring conversations back home to our kitchen tables, the point of this is to help you know, increase awareness, to allow everyone to have a better opportunity to, you know, learn some new things and to be able to share what we've learned with the people that we love and support the most. So I'm going to start today with just discussing a few facts and statistics. So I think that, you know, many of you may be surprised and many of you may not be surprised that our young people, you know, people between the ages of 15 and 24 are are the ones who are struggling the most with mental illness at this point. 39% of students indicate that they are struggling with some moderate to serious levels of distress. That's 39% of high school students. That's a lot. Men are more likely to struggle with substance misuse and abuse, whereas women are more likely to struggle with mood disorders. Um, I think that it's also really important to recognize that our mental and our physical health are really significantly linked. Um, and in my clinic, we are really trying to offer, you know, really creative and holistic approaches to mental health and wellness. And we discuss things like uh, lifestyle changes, obviously, that we can make to, to promote good mental wellness. Um, but we also involve other clinicians. So there's a huge link between our gut health and our mental health and what we eat and how that all interacts with our body and our systems and how that uh, impacts the way that we feel and function. So uh, oftentimes our sessions uh, involve a multidisciplinary uh, team approach. So we will, you know, frequently have a dietitian join in with our social work services and most recently i've uh, partnered with uh, an osteopath who's really doing some great work um, helping to relieve and to integrate our nervous systems in a better way that helps with overall physical and mental health function so please feel free to to check out my website for more information around you know statistics and some of these facts that i'm sharing but also some of the programs and services that we're offering But I do think that it's really important to understand also that, you know, there's so many determinants, social determinants of health that impact our mental health and wellness and put us at higher risk. So low income, for example, three or four times higher to struggle with significant mental illness and or substance abuse and mental illness alone can cut off 10 to 20 years of of, off of people's lives. Um, I'm not sure that everybody knows that there's like 11 suicides a day in in Canada. That's over 4,000 suicides a year. And again, linking this back to the issue of poverty and low income, I mean, I I, I don't know whether everybody understands that 12% of Canadian kids are living in poverty, and half of those are Indigenous kids. I also wonder if people understand how our IQ and our intelligence is actually affected by chronic poverty. So it's actually like there's studies that show that our IQ can, lower, can be lowered by 10 to 13 points if we're constantly worried about where our food is going to come from, whether or not our housing needs are met, whether our children's needs are met financially, these are huge considerations and this kind of stress, it would be equal to, um, you know, in terms of negative impact as comparing a normal adult brain to one who struggles with chronic alcoholism. So again, poverty is huge and it is directly linked to our overall mental health and wellness. So in my clinic, I see it all the time where people indicate to me that, you know, eating healthy the way that we encourage um, through our clinic is, is out of reach for so many who really struggle with um, financial issues. Um, you know, a lot, of, uh, a lot of the problems that people are experiencing are linked to poverty uh, rural health is another thing that's that compounds some of the problems, um, or maybe you know there's different problems, whether you live in urban settings or rural, but transportation issues are huge. How does a young person get um, a part time job to help with his own um, financial goals when he doesn't have transportation to get to town or when he doesn't have? Uh, an extra car or when mom and dad are, you know, busy working every day and just don't have the means to, to be able to transport um, people a half an hour to their part-time job. Childhood obesity is on the rise as well. And um, we also know that, you know, foods that fill us up are often carbohydrates and they come cheap, but cheaper than some of the uh the healthier choices that families would like to provide for one another but simply um they can't due to financial restraints so once again, uh, you know, the main goal behind these podcasts is to help, you know, clarify some misunderstandings, to provide some additional information, and to certainly work towards uh, prevention and reducing any kind of stigma or you know misunderstandings around mental health and complicated uh, societal issues. And so, I think it's really important for all of us to understand that that uh, in a recent study, seventy five percent indicated that they would were not comfortable disclosing a mental illness to their workplace. So this is huge. Despite our efforts, there's still a significant worry that people are going to be judged harshly, not trusted, and um, their vocational goals will be at risk as a result. Um, you know, just recent conversations, you know, in my clinic every, you know, every week I hear where people are still struggling with stigma and misunderstanding. And I hear it, you know, all the time where in my in my personal circle as well, where there are professionals out there that would not even consider going to counseling services, but would consider going to the doctor potentially for some medication in order to, to help support their mood or their anxiety, for example, um, but to actually go and talk about some of the issues that, that are the underpinning um, is still really, you know, maybe misunderstood, but still very uh, a very uncomfortable place for many, many people. So I think, you know, so many people are struggling with the understanding that their experience is just typical and it's in their head and they should be able to work it out themselves um, and not really understanding the benefit of uh, of having a safe place to discuss and to challenge our, our thinking and our views and our, um, you know, our approaches that might not be leading us down the healthiest of paths. That being said, it's also really important to understand that there are significant wait lists for any kind of mental health services here in Canada. So on average, uh, 67 days for counseling services, 92 days for any kind of more intensive treatment. And I know from my own personal experience trying to get young people into residential treatment facilities uh, or residential um, group homes and that kind of thing, um, you know, the wait list is often years. and then we're talking about, you know, wait lists for supportive or subsidized housing, which can be upwards to seven years for people who are struggling with complex neurodevelopmental disorders. So, you know, there's still a lot of work that we need to do. And the cost to society for mental health issues alone indicate, you know, the these st- the statistics indicate that we're at 50 billion a year here in Canada. Um, so there is a, a real benefit to consider advocating for universal mental health care and really working towards prevention efforts, um, because this is where the investment might um, bring the returns that we're looking at. And for those of you who know me, um, you will know that I do have a particular interest in some of the hidden disabilities that are, um, you know, also kind of preventable with the right information and the right support. So I really believe that we can't do any kind of mental health awareness without acknowledging the role of prenatal alcohol exposure. So prenatal alcohol exposure does not just result in um, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, for example. Although, as as we know, the prevalence rates of, of that are very high. We're now looking at, you know, four to five percent of the general population in Canada would qualify for a fetal alcohol spectrum disorder diagnosis, which is, which means that there is significant impairment in at least three brain domains. And I personally have never worked with anybody with who has an FASD diagnosis that does not have a a, an existing mental health diagnosis as well or mental illness. So that really needs to be considered. But we also need to consider that um, prenatal alcohol exposure is directly linked to anxiety and depression in later years. So please check out my website for some more, uh, Articles and more reading in this regard. But again, we can't look at mental health without considering the role that alcohol plays with individuals who are experiencing it because we know that you know, the risk of substance use disorder um, is much higher for people who with mental illness, um, but also the role of prenatal alcohol exposure. So, this is where we can really work to prevent um, you know, some of the more subtle but yet real and sometimes debilitating um, consequence. So I'll end this little chat with just talking about ways that we can look after our mental health and just remembering the importance of building and support uh, and nurturing our, our communities and our support networks and our, our uh, connections. And also taking the time to really identify and label and recognize and acknowledge and honor some of the feelings that we're having, even the distressing ones. I think we're so programmed to avoid any kind of pain or any sort of distress or stress that we do, We know, we do a really good job of binging Netflix or, you know, surfing the net and, and having, you know, 14 pages open on our computer, there's constant distractions available to us. And that does prevent us from actually being in the moment and feeling the feelings that are necessary uh, in order for us to learn from. So identifying them, feeling them, I think that's really, really important, being in the moment. But then also what's really equally important is not uh, is not staying stuck there and doing our best to recognize that when our feelings um are difficult and the thoughts that accompany our feelings um, are no longer helpful to us then we need to take time to to let them go and move on to something else uh, moving our bodies and exercising we've talked about this before the importance of you know 30 30 minutes of getting your heart rate up three times a week is just so beneficial um, to with regards to our mental wellness um, getting outside and being in nature trying a new hobby or a new sport and sometimes we have to recognize that we don't necessarily like things until we get better at them. So we do have to practice a little bit. Um, you know, speaking personally, not a big golfer for a long, long time would have preferred to watch paint dry, I used to say than to golf. But once you get practicing or working at it and hanging out with people that you love who love the sport, then all of a sudden you can start to learn that you actually really do like something. So that's my example, but. Um, You know, I think that it's important to recognize that even when it comes to our jobs, you know, sometimes we don't like our jobs at the beginning. But then once we get good at it, we start to, we we really do learn to like like what we're doing and really see benefit and um, purpose and meaning in all of that. So being in the moment, practicing mindfulness, recognizing that too much time spent in the future leads to or often is... um, um, unnecessary stress or anxiety and spending too much time in the past pondering and wondering the what-ifs and the regrets that can also lead to depressive thoughts that are not necessarily helpful once we're finished learning from that. And, you know, self-compassion and being kind to ourselves is something that's also really important. And it doesn't necessarily mean spoiling ourselves or, you know, avoiding difficult things. Sometimes self-care actually does involve, you know, setting up a to-do list and actually being proud of all of our accomplishments, even the ones that we don't want to do so being kind to ourselves is really important sometimes we need to treat treat ourselves the way we would treat our best friend and I would argue that that is often very very different so I'll leave it with that um, you know feel free to check out my website there's quite a few links that can further your understanding and, and just give you some more opportunities to learn a few more things um, around mental health and well-being overall I'm so glad that you're here today I hope you have a wonderful week with many thanks Angela.